0: I was listening to, uh, by the way, I, I, I love it when Travis and Lance play. They have a beautiful, their voices, uh, it's, it's hard to describe how voices can represent humility, but that's what I see in those two men. And the way they sing is an earnest, earnest singing to God. There's no show or anything. And I was listening to Travis saying, I want to yearn for you, God. I want to burn for you. And I was thinking, our message today is about trees. I don't know if that's going to happen today. It's an important message about trees because it allows me to say to you guys, Happy New Year! I mean, come on. It's, it's a little early, actually, to be wishing you Happy New Year. I mean, it's only January 28th. I hope you're confused by that. You should be. <laughs> it's, this is the happy new year of one of the five new years that we get to celebrate in the synagogue. Now just pause right there. Isn't that incredible? What other religion gives you the opportunity to celebrate five new years in one year? Of course we have January 1st, but that's boring. I mean, everybody does that. We have four more. We have this one that's coming up. It's called Tu the New Year for Trees. Today is the 6th of Shabbat. On the 15th of Shabbat, Shavat, which is the Hebrew month, we will celebrate another New Year. So that's the Happy New Year I'm giving you. But there are three other ones. You have the first of Elul which is the new year for livestock, which is certainly relevant for all of you, I'm sure. We also have the first of Nisan, which is coming up not too long from now. And we have the first of Tishrei, which is what? The month of Tishrei is the holiest month in the calendar. It's the seventh month, and the first of Tishrei is a very familiar new year called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. So, why, you ask, would there need to be four different New Years? Why so complicated? Well, I want to make it extremely complicated for you and read from the Mishnah to give you the reason why. And the Mishnah, of course, is a very, very ancient text. If you guys will pull up my slideshow, it will be helpful. This is the text from the Mishnah, which helps us understand these four new years. On the first of Nisan is the new year for kings. That is for Jewish kings. There's a different one for Gentile kings. But on the first of Nisan is the new year for kings. It is from this date that the years of a king's rule are counted and the first of Nisan is also the new year for the order of the festivals as it determines which is considered the first festival of the year and which the last. So what's this king thing? Well, contracts in the ancient Near East were dated by which king was ruling. So there's a unique thing about how a king's reign is counted. The month before Nisan is called Adar. If a king became king on the last day of Adar, that is considered his first year of kingship. The next day when it became Nisan 1, he was in his second year. Okay? This is the new year for kings, that's how that works. It's also, of course, the new year for festivals because Nisan Pesach is the first festival that the people that the Israel the Hebrews were commanded. Second, on the first of Elul is the new year for animal tithes. All the animals born prior to that date belong to the previous tithe year and are tithed as a single unit, whereas those born after that date belong to the next tithe year. Now, there's a dissenting opinion, which I didn't put in there. But this is animal tithes. You put all of your animals in a pen there's a very narrow gate. This should sound familiar to those who are familiar with the New Testament. But there's a big pin, a narrow gate. The farmer takes the animals through, and every tenth one he daubs with a red mark. And that's his tithe on his livestock. Elul is related to that. That's how you know which animals to tithe when. Okay? Okay. On the 1st of Tishrei is the new year for counting years. That's Rosh Hashanah, as will be explained in the Gemara, it says. Rosh Hashanah is the creation of the world, tradition tells us. So we count years from Rosh Hashanah. It's also the time at which God judges the year. Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, is another name for Rosh Hashanah. And the 1st of Tishrei is is for counting sabbatical years and jubilee years. From the first of Tishrei, there is a biblical prohibition that you do not work the land during the seventh year or the fiftieth year. That's the, the Shemitah and the, um, the jubilee or the yovel. But also, and here's where it gets nice and complicated, it's also the new year for planting, for determining the years of orlah. The three-year period from when a tree has been planted, during which time its fruit is forbidden. Now listen, planting, okay? Let me explain this to you. And I know you're probably already beginning to doze off, but this is the important stuff. This is from the Torah. This is Leviticus 19. When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, you're to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. So, again, sort of like the king's, If you plant a tree at least 44 days in advance of Tishrei, two weeks for it to take root, a month for it to grow, that tree is counted as being one year old at that point. At the first of Tishrei, it enters its second year. Okay, you with me? This is for the determination of how do we know how long a tree has been in the ground for Orla, that three-year period in which it is forbidden to eat. That is marked by the first of Tishrei. It's a new year for planting. It's, that has nothing to do with tithing, by the way. You awake? <laughs> Except it has something to do with tithing on vegetables because... You tithe your vegetables, vegetables picked prior to the first of Tishrei are for that year, after are for the next year. So you got it? Lots going on on the first of Tishrei. I want you to make sure all your vegetables are marked. You don't have to do it, do you? Because we're not in the land. But that's the third new year. And the fourth new year, it says the first of Shabbat Shabbat is the new year for trees. The fruit of a tree that was formed prior to that date belongs to the previous tithe year and cannot be tied together with fruit that was formed after that date. Okay? First of Shavat it should be. But we find in the ruling, I mean in the Mishnah, this ruling is in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai, that that would happen on the first of Shavat. Hillel came along and said, nope, it's the 15th of Shavat." And so, anyone know the rule between rulings of Hillel and Shammai? Hillel's rule stands. So, the new year for trees is the 15th of Shavat. That's the Mishnah. You thoroughly confused? That was my intention. No, it's not. It's to explain to you why, but here's the real deal. The answer to why, and, and if you want to have, I'm assuming there's a cake out there, hopefully, probably for Kelly, it, I want you to enjoy that cake as much as you'd like. The only thing you'll need to do prior to getting a piece is to pass the written exam on everything I just <laughs> told you about the four New Years. Okay. The, may, the main point of this, why they exist is these, these are necessary components for the observance of Torah. Okay? At any chance I get to say this, I like to say this. The rabbis, the sages of Israel who wrote the Mishnah, who constructed these rules, they are not bad people. They're not doing it to be mean. They're not doing it to be legalistic. They're not ma- doing it to make your life hard, miserable, or unfair. These things are important because God said, this is how you show gratitude for these certain things. And if you don't have any rules or understanding around those things, you can't do it right. And ultimately you end up violating the Torah. So the rabbis constructed all of these rules and things, rules, laws around this so that Torah could properly properly be observed but let's just focus on one new year the one we're preparing to celebrate Tu tubishvat means the 15th of shevat now how does it mean that this is this is pretty easy in hebrew letters can also be numbers okay so here we have the letter tet tet equals 9 then we have the letter vav vav equals 5 what do you get when you add tet and vav in the numeric value? 9 plus 6 equals 15. Very good. I'm so proud of you guys. That is the word two. Tet and vav, two, its numerical value means 15. So we have two, the 15th, Shavat, the 15th in of the month of Shabbat. That's what the name is. Two is a number. Okay? That's easy. One other bit of trivia, though, while we're on the topic of 15. Tu Bishvat is the first of three festivals that are coming over the next three months. In It's not a leap year, so they're back to back. And they all happen on the 15th of the next few months. So here's your test. February is Tu Bishvat. March, which is Adar 15, is what? Purim, Purim, when we're having our family fun weekend. The following month is Nisan. The 15th of Nisan is Passover. So we have three full moon celebrations that are coming over the next three months, all on the 15th. That's just your Jeopardy bonus in case, you know you ever are in final jeopardy, I hope they ask you questions about the festivals. I really do. But I'll ask this better question. How many of you have ever celebrated the New Year for Trees? How many of you ever imagined in all the days of your life that you would celebrate (laughs) a New Year for Trees? Who ever wanted to celebrate a New Year for Trees? Probably not very many people. But that's why you're here, to learn new and exciting things about the Bible, the history, the context, the culture of your faith. And this week, is, this week as we talk about Tu B'Shvat, is sort of, a, in the words of Nacho Libre, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. <laughs> this is about the nuts and bolts of Tu so that you understand it. Next week... Oh my goodness, he's making a two-week message about trees. Yeah, next week is going to be about, our, our as we're preparing for our Tu B'Shvat Seder, it's about practicality, application for us. How we can possibly grow from a holiday about trees. Did you see what I did? Yeah, I hope you did. What's so special about the 15th of Shivat? What makes it a new year? Well... And, and actually, how did it move from being what it was, which was just a day to mark tithes, into something we celebrate? Well, first we need to remember that we're talking about Israel. We're talking about the second temple period in Israel. So weather patterns are slightly different there than ours, but the special thing about the 15th is that the rabbis of that time determined that this is when the fruit of trees began to actually form. Okay, The winter rains had pretty much tapered off. The ground was saturated and the trees, winter's not over, but the, the rains are in the ground and the trees begin to soak up all that water and, and the sap in the trees begins to rise. And so the fruit begins to be produced or, or formed on the 15th of Shavat. These are signs that something is happening, signs of life that begin around this season. Now, I don't know if, if this ever happens to you, but, you know, when, when spring is soon to arrive, that is a cause to celebrate. Kelly and I, we were just talking about it. Not only in in Macon, not only is everything brown and the the leaves are all off the trees and all that, but it it rains a lot. And so it's cold. It's soggy. The sun is not that warm. and, And we begin to feel this legitimate feeling of like the not sadness or depression, but like winter blues, the doldrums. You're just you're ready for something to change, I was outside the other night. It had been raining all day. It was cold. Uh, the ground is soggy and wet. I'm taking the trash out. This, the rain had moved out. I look up at the sky and I can see the like the beautiful stars, which I love to do. The constellations, the planet, everything. I have the same thought every time. These are the stars that the disciples looked up at. These are the stars that David and Abraham and I, I love them. And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, but it's really cold and miserable. And I just said, you know, Hashem, I'm ready for this to be. I'm ready. I'm ready to move into a warmer place. And the great thing about this awakening period of time is that no matter what hell is going on in the world or in your life personally, spring is going to come. I mean, as long as the earth is, Spring, a time of renewal, a time of grass and green, which is what I said to Hashem, I'm ready for some warmth and sunlight and color and blooms and fruit and all the life. And the great celebration of joy in recognizing this right now in Tubishvat is that God is faithful to bring that about. And soon, we'll be able to enjoy it. So this is a little, it's a little pre-taste of the life Tu B'Shvat, the process is happening now. Even if we really can't see what the trees are doing behind the scenes and the fruit that's beginning to form, spring is around the corner. That's why this is a, a, something we're celebrating. But it was a legal date, of course, setting the fiscal year for the tithing of fruit. But something then made it much, much more than that. Something that transformed Israel and, and Judaism as a whole also transformed to Beshvat. It happened in 70 CE. Can you tell me what that would be? The destruction of the temple changed everything because now there was no place to bring tithes. Um, that All of that sort of just, it, it, it was, it, it sort of vanished, you know? And we talked about this in the Ask the Rabbi section on Shalom at Home Uh on the court, uh, what is it, a class that we did on Wednesday. Thursday night, by the way, Pat Petronio did a, a wonderful class on Shalom at Home called Now What? There are things going on at Shalom at Home. If you're not part of that, check it out. But in the Ask the Rabbi class, we talked about a development that began to happen during Talmudic times. And after the destruction of the temple, there was a, a, a new way of connecting things, which was called the Midrashic way, looking at, at finding meaning in things that had changed so, so much. And this more Midrashic or esoteric approach looked like this. Sacrifice was gone. The place of the Torah, you know, it, it became much more prevalent. Uh, and even this time of year, because we weren't bringing tithes, the, the sages looked for some other significance. It wasn't about tithes anymore. And so after the exile, we find this new relevant meaning in two primary areas. First of all, remembering and celebrating the land of Israel. Secondly, the bigger picture, actually, a celebration of the day when God renews the flow of life to the universe. Now, if that sounds out there a little bit, it is out there a little bit. Tu is definitely a more, it's first of all, a later development of, of, of how we observe and celebrate in the Seder itself. And uh, it was developed from more esoteric schools of thought. And if you're not afraid of it, you might even use the word mystical. <laughs> but all of that happened because Jewish life was no more without making things relevant. And so those two primary components, remembering in the land of Israel, particularly the produce of the land, and celebrating God's restoration of life to the trees and ultimately in us, as we'll see next week, that all took shape in one primary observance of, on Tisha B'Av that survives, uh, not Tisha B'Av, uh, Tubishvat one primary observance that we 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 surround this, this celebration with. It's a shocker for a Jewish festival, I know, but here it is. On this particular day, we commemorate these events by eating. Whoa. That's something we do occasionally on every festival except Tisha B'Av and, and Yom Kippur. The eating of fruits represented two things. And for, for, the, for the mystics, even if we couldn't be in Israel, tithing, we can, we can still be eating the fruit on Tuba shvat, blessing the fruit of the land with a dedicated blessing. And then doing that, helped us center on the goodness and the ongoing provision of God in the land, even if we weren't there. So doing all this was a connection to God's provision in Israel after we had been kicked out and focus on the, the renewal of life that he's bringing about was obvious. Now, regardless of who came up with it, mystical, traditional, whatever, it's a beautiful idea it's just a beautiful idea to recognize always God's provision, and particularly at this, this, this hopeful thing that I just talked about with spring. So the produce, the nuts, the fruit, all of it. And the traditional fruits and things that we eat are drawn from. Where do you think they might have drawn the inspiration for what we should eat at the Tu Seder? From the Torah. Okay because that's where we draw these things. Deuteronomy. You read there in Deuteronomy 8.8, Observe the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat, barley, vines, that's grapes, and fig trees, that's figs, pomegranates, Olives, that's olive oil, and honey. These are, not bee honey, date honey. These are the seven species of the land of Israel in the Torah. And so as part of the Tu B'Shvat Seder, we celebrate and consume the seven species of the land. And it's from these ideas that the Tu B'Shvat Seder developed, obviously modeled after the Passover Seder, complete with four cups of wine even, which... If you're a wine drinker, it makes the Seder more fun. Each representing those those four cups of wine in the Tubishvat Seder, they found a beautiful and creative way to celebrate and connect those two redemption and renewal for the Jewish people from Isaiah 45. I'm sorry, 43, 5. 43, 5, and 7. Where Isaiah writes, do not fear, for I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, one cup, whom I have created for my glory, a second cup, third whom I have formed, and whom I have made, the four cups. And even the wine is tied to the idea of God's nature and renewal. Your first cup, you start with a straight-up glass of white wine. White represents the dormancy of winter in this particular case. Your next cup, you add a few little drops of red as the sap rises. Your third cup, you add a little bit more as we approach closer to spring. And then Red, the last cup with just a few remaining drops of white wine, celebrates blossoming and renewal in your body and in the world. It represents nature and in bloom. So, they thought a lot about this to make it beautiful. I'm thankful that they did. We're going to hold our first community, Tu Seder, on the 5th. And you'll have an opportunity to experience all of the themes and the tastes of Tubishvat there. We're going to live stream it. And Darren and Sabrina, I think anyway, are going to do like a QA and a prep on Shalom at Home to tell you kind of what to have at your table if you want to follow along with us and, and do it, which would be beautiful. And I want to add one thing about that, because I've made a couple of comments about it. You know, the, the Tu B'Shvat and Seder and its origin in the, in the more mystical side of Judaism. Now, personally, that doesn't pose a problem for me, or maybe many of you, But but, well, actually, let me side note that real quick, because... Trying to make sure I should say this. I think I will say this. Do you know who Gregory of Nyssa is? Gregory and Basil and Basil or Basil and another, another uh, mystic. They're called the Cappadocian Fathers. They are the guys who ultimately, in the fourth century, put together the doctrine of the Trinity. Gregory of Nyssa is a mystic. He's the first Christian mystic, regardless of your perspective on the Trinity. But Trinity is like the core foundation of Christianity, right? And a Christian mystic and his brother and another dude were a part of putting that together. Gregory of Nyssa is also by, in many schools of thought, a universalist. Like he He writes, clearly, Paul is saying in the Bible, everyone is going to be saved. This is a Christian mystic universalist who wrote the foundation of Christian theology in the Trinity. And yet, somehow or another, when you hear or read something that is more esoteric or mystical in Judaism, it's like, ah, exorcism. No, sometimes you have to just let the Holy Spirit be a filter for you in experiencing things that you may not be familiar with. I am not in any way suggesting that you go out after Shabbat and get yourself a copy of the Zohar and begin to, you know, put a red bracelet on and study Kabbalah all day. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting, and I've made this point on purpose about the foundations of this, because If you choose to experience it and you find something beautiful in the experience, that's a lesson. It's more than just about spring. It's about being open at least to the idea that some people that might be different than you have good ideas that can improve your spiritual life and connection to God. Okay, sorry. Little soapbox thing there that I just needed to get off my chest. I like Gregory of Nisa, by the way. He's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Uh, we follow in our Seder, though, having said all of that. You ready? We follow the FFOZ, First Roots of Zion, Haggadah for Tisha Tubishfat, Tubishvat. It's just so confusing. For Tubishvat, which has done a fantastic job. It's called Bloom. You can still get it before your Seder if you want. It's called Bloom. It's a Messianic Jewish Haggadah for Tu B'Shvat. Yeah, I said that right, Tu B'Shvat. And what they've done is they've removed some of the, like, maybe confusing or very unfamiliar themes from the traditional Haggadah and replaced them with texts from the Apostolic Scriptures and... Words from Yeshua that make all of this for us as Messianics incredibly, incredibly meaningful and beautiful. It's wonderful. Last component, I promise you, of Tu B'Shvat, what's left. The modern-day meaning and practice. Planting a tree in Israel. When I was growing up in the synagogue, I always knew it was Tu because we got these handy-dandy little certificates where we sponsored a tree, okay, I've looked it up for you. You can sponsor Plant a Tree in Israel for two for $18, and you get one of these things. But we'll see much more next week about how trees have always occupied in this, this significant role in Judaism. I mean, creation story. Seed-bearing plants and fruit trees were put on the earth before any other living things. The tree at the center of the garden that was that has become the tree of life. It's become a, a symbol in the core of, of Jewish existence. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who lived in Jerusalem when it was being destroyed by the Romans, he taught the priority of planting. He said, if you should be holding a sapling in your hand when they tell you the Messiah has arrived, he advised, first plant the sapling, then go out and greet him. On Tu B'Shvat in ancient Israel... When a boy was born, a cedar tree was planted. When a girl was born, a cypress tree was planted. The cedar, strong, and bold. The, no, the cypress, strong, bold. No, the cedar, strong, <laughs> bold. The cypress, fragrant and gentle and beautiful. And so they would plant these trees for, this, for the boy and the girl. Later, when a boy and girl met and married, they would take the sticks, the tree from the cypress and from the cedar and build the marriage chuppah that they came under. So the two like most profound things in life, your birth and your marriage, are connected to the earth and to God and to the trees. It's beautiful, man. Right? Planting a tree brings hope. And so with the growth of Zionism in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then there was the rebirth of the nation of Israel, 75 years ago this year, can you believe that? Planting trees became a focus of the olim, those, the pioneers who were coming back to the land to resettle this land of rocks and dust. And the they, planting became a, a, a foundational value. And in Israel today, on Tu Bishvat, all the schools go out, the little kids, they go and plant their little tree saplings in celebration. And for us, if you're in the diaspora, if you're not in Israel, that's why the, the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, allows you to sponsor the planting of a tree in Israel. So I'm going to post that link, though, on Shalom at Home if you want to, if you want to um Planetary. It's funny because Tu B'Shvat has really just sort of been relegated to this Jewish arbor day, and it's so much more than that, because I don't want to be conceited, but everything we do is so much more than what it seems in the festivals and and Shabbat, and in in the liturgy, and everything. It's so much more when you peel those layers back. And even though it's not found in Leviticus 23, this is not a festival of the Lord found in Leviticus. And even though some of the traditions are of later development, the celebration of God as the creator, the sustainer, the renewer of life in this season, like the tree itself, is an absolute thing of beauty. And so, that's why I wanted to take this day to give you some foundation and background behind the holiday, the new year, the celebration itself. As I've told you, we'll apply that in a powerful way to your life personally in next week's teaching. Shabbat Shalom.